five billion dollars. That's how much Facebook is going to have to fork over to the government under a settlement with the Federal Trade Commission. It's the biggest fine for violating user privacy by a wide margin, more than 20 times bigger than the previous record, according to the FTC chair. If I got hit with a $5 billion speeding ticket, that would hurt, not gonna lie. But some are already saying the settlement doesn't go far enough. So after this settlement, can Facebook say it has paid its debt to society or did Zuckerberg and company just make out like bandits? And what does it say about privacy regulators' ability to effectively walk the beat in Silicon Valley. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I am John Fort from CNBC, and I'm back at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square after a couple of weeks of much needed R&R. With me this week to shake me out of my vacation-induced stupor is Farhad Manju of the New York Times. Farhad, good to see you. Hey, nice to have you back from vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's good to be back, but it's also good to be on vacation. But Farhad, so yeah, you, you've no, had some time to digest this. It's not just the money. It's not just the $5 billion. It's also some new restrictions, compliance, uh, oversight, perhaps is a better word, that Facebook has to implement internally on privacy. Is this enough? Well, it depends on what we mean by enough. I, I mean, I don't think that it is... Uh, of huge consequence, I don't think it's going to, I mean, obviously investors don't seem to feel this way. It, it's not going to change, uh, it, it's not going to like ruin the company cha or change the course of the company in some dramatic way. But I don't, there's some pundits who are saying like it's unimportant or it's just like a slap on the wrist. I don't think it's a slap on the wrist. I think that yeah. um, for That's one a thing, you know. across the face, certainly. I mean, this is like 9% <laughs> yeah. of 2018 revenue, 23% of profit. I mean, if somebody took... 9% of my salary away, that would hurt. You would notice. Yeah. Yeah, you'd care. Um, yeah, and, and also, you know, more than the money, I think that the ongoing kind of oversight and maybe just the idea that the FTC is going to be watching now, like, th the difference here is, like, before, I would say, you know, three years ago, there was just, like, no cop on the beat. There was just no, very little regulation uh, in the U.S., that companies like Facebook and Google had to pay attention to or think about on a daily but basis. You know, they were yeah. under the consent decree, right? They were under the consent decree, but they, they, and I think the FTC kind of all pretended that the consent decrees didn't really matter, didn't, uh, you know, didn't change what they did on a daily kind of operational basis. Yeah. And I think that's the difference here. Like, it's gonna, it's gonna change. I think how how they think about products when they release products, how they think about um, uh, just all of the privacy implications about them. And I feel like it's going to, uh, you know, at the margins, they're, they're not going to do some things that they might have done before or they're going to take, you know, uh, take more precautions than they would have before. Hmm. I, I feel like it's important, though, to notice that, to note that, like, it's, um, it, the, the FTC is, like, hamstrung because there's not a lot of strong laws here. So the real kind of next step is for Congress to do something if we really want, you know, much stiffer penalties or enforcement. But I think the FTC seemed to do as much as it may be possible for the FTC to do now. Right. So, so today th there was another argument, what I see as a new argument that, that sort of came out, which kind of came out of the dissent on the FTC over all of this, saying that really no amount of money would have been enough Really, no amount of internal oversight would have been enough because the issue is Facebook's business model. The issue is what some are calling surveillance capitalism. This whole idea of targeted digital advertising is itself the problem. Uh, 
isn't that effectively looking to upend the entire online advertising ecosystem? Is that the direction that we might be headed in next? Um, I think that there are some people in the debate who do want to uh, upend the entire online marketing industry. And I think that there's you know, some good reason to look at doing that. I mean, for one thing, it's an industry with enormous power over a lot of businesses and a lot of kind of uh, just public debate. It's a, it's a big part of the media business. It's a big part of the entertainment business. It's yeah. a big part of like publishing. And then the other thing is, you know, it's run effectively by two companies. And so, you know, we have um, the Justice Department doing a review. We have uh, kind of antitrust review, now privacy at FTC. I think there are more avenues to look at that. Um, and, you know, there I may be some scenario where so you do upend the entire industry. Here's a moment for my, for my Fort Knox love, right? We got no commercial breaks. We got a good amount of time. You're a big thinker, Farhad. That's something I like about you. So let's figure out how, do, how do would that actually look, right? Because for people who, who don't know, the targeted digital advertising is, is something that uh, Facebook and Google in particular are, are uniquely positioned to do because unlike any company online before it, Facebook knows who you actually are not just who you're mm -hmm. representing yourself to be online based on who you're friends with, uh, you know, through mobile, where you actually are location-wise, online, et cetera. Google knows your intent based on what you're searching for, you know, through maps, they know where you are, right? So, so what are the sorts of rules that would be in place that would allow for an online advertising ecosystem but wouldn't be surveillance capitalism? How do you either anonymize or inoculate the system from the kind of uh, surveillance that people are fearing? Oh, I think you can think of lots of rules in law and then also sort of technical rules. So, you know, the, the kind of the legal rules could be kind of all about privacy. So, you know, how much information Google is around, allowed to collect about you and then how long it's allowed to keep it, um, what, how it can kind of connect the information. Um, there's all kinds of data brokers in between you and um, ad tech. And so what happens with those data brokers? I think, you know... Uh, imaginative privacy experts could come up with a bunch of rules that would severely uh, hamper uh, what Google and Facebook do, but not you know, kill it, not change it, uh, not make them uh, non-existent, but would still kind of change the entire business model. And then you could also think of you know, what other players in the market could do. So for example, Apple has been you know, selling privacy as a key part of its business model. It also competes with uh, Google and Facebook in, in some measures, and so you know, it is in Apple's interest, and we've seen them doing things like make it more difficult for uh, Google and Facebook to track users across devices, coming up with their own, um, you know, that anonymous emailer thing, so you don't get uh, mm -hmm. as much. Love that. So, you, so you can kind of yeah. Log in with and Apple. So essentially, is, is log, what you're talking log about, in, right? Log in with Apple. The, right. The new, yeah, um, the new version of iOS coming out. You'll have a unique uh, email address for every single thing that you sign up for. And then, you know, they don't, they don't get to tie that to every other thing you've right. done with that email address online. Love it. Yeah, I mean, those kinds of measures, you know, whether from big companies like Apple or uh, users can install them on their own. Uh, there's all ad blockers are a big thing now. I mean, I think you can imagine a different way that the web runs, um, and that will result in 
you know, Google and Facebook becoming less profitable and perhaps seeking out new and different kinds of business models. And I don't think it would be necessarily unhealthy or just even kind of a bad or anti-American thing for us to think about. I mean, these companies are huge, they're massively profitable, and um, they're affecting huge parts of the world in negative ways. And so I think it's proper that you know, regulators and lawmakers and competitors should start kind of looking at um, their influence and perhaps trying to think about how to diminish it. You know something I find uh, a little bit funny, uh, Farhad, is that th there are a lot of these conversations in tech around big tech companies, their dominance, and people have taken to saying, particularly inside these big tech companies, hey, if we don't do it, China's going to do it. We don't want a world where China yeah. does it first. It's funny to me, though, that on the regulatory end, we don't tend to hear if we don't do it, Europe's going to do it. We don't want a world where Europe <laughs> regulates more strongly than we do. I don't know. It's just that's kinda, a good point. Yeah. yeah, and we have that world. I mean, we had that we had that world up until a few months ago when our regulators started looking at it. But you know, for years, it's been the case that Google and Facebook have essentially escaped much scrutiny from American regulators, and European regulators have been a lot tougher, and that's benefited. European com consumers, but has also kind of, as a, as a side benefit in some instances, benefited American consumers mm. who, you know, get these, the benefit of these laws, which uh, Facebook and Google kind of, in some cases, have chosen to apply universally. So yeah. I, I do think it's the case that Europe, and, you know, Europe has kind of more interest in uh, policing these companies. For, for one thing, they're not, uh, they're not European they're not companies. European companies, and so, yeah. Yeah, they see it as, you know, foreign companies coming in and owning all their citizens' information and changing the media landscape there. They have a kind of a much stronger case to make politically, culturally, um, and, you know, I think that's why they were out ahead. But now it's the case that even, you know, American regulators and lawmakers and consumers are, are worried about this. Yeah, $5 billion, once again, a lot of money. All right, Farhad, time to get yeah. those digits. Here are a few numbers that caught my eye this week. Siri has the first. Fourteen. Fourteen. That's how many tech companies have spent at least $1 million on lobbying already this year, maybe in the quarter, Facebook and Amazon leading the way. Um, I, I don't know if Facebook feels like it got its money's worth after this fine. I don't know. I guess maybe they could have ended up paying $6 billion maybe if they hadn't lobbied. Farhad, you have also been around long enough to remember a time when Silicon Valley companies didn't really mess around with lobbying too much. They like to try to present, pretend uh, DC didn't exist. Not anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's impossible now. Uh, these companies are operating kind of at a huge scale. And even the startups, I mean, they're operating in new kinds of markets. Like, you know, Uber, obviously, a big part of like how Uber operates involves interfacing with governments and regulators. Um, I think it's just a new fact of life uh, for tech companies that tech is such an important and kind of powerful uh, industry that everyone who has an interest in that um, those markets is going to be in Washington, and so tech has to be there too. I'm not sure how to feel about it, though. I mean, whenever I hear about lobbying, especially big amounts of money being spent on lobbying, my gut reaction is, it's dirty, um, because there's money going around. <laughs> but then at the same time, I mean, sometimes there's legitimate communication about policy, you know, ideas that are, that are given people being educated about artificial intelligence, about big data, uh, about the, the global competition. Uh, they often get this information from industry groups whose funding is counted as lobbying. I don't know, what do you think? 
Um, I think that in general, uh, American lawmakers have been way too slow on getting up to speed on, um, you know, the internet, on digital controversies, on the digital world in general. We've seen that in the way, you know, some of the early hearings, like the first Zuckerberg hearing. It's just been um, uh, dismaying to see that and. Um, it's also dismaying that now their education is coming from uh, these tech companies. I mean, in the past, like in the 90s, there were, you know, congressional offices who, whose entire job was to think about the future and think about technology and make sort of comprehensive uh, plans and ideas for technology in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we should have that kind of process instead yeah. of, you know, lobbying, uh, informing uh, the um, lawmakers. There yeah, may be Khan Academy for, for politicians. You know, maybe... <laughs> yeah. Maybe that can help them get smarter about this stuff. All right, Siri, next digit. 87. 87. That's how many days it took for Avengers Endgame to become the highest grossing film of all time in what has just been a dominant box office season for Disney. Farhad, you know Lion King has also done quite well. And really the technology setup for all this is these huge movies they've got now become these assets for subscriptions, for that service, Disney Plus. Uh, right at the time that Netflix, its numbers for the quarter were looking a little bit shaky. What's your take? Uh, I think this is the Disney business model from the very start, from when, like, Roy uh, Disney uh, created it. You know, you would have these huge franchises that then would bleed over into theme parks and other, and toys and merchandise and other kinds of businesses, and this is just continuing it to streaming. And um, they've been very good at, uh, you know, buying up the or creating um, the kind of monumental intellectual property of our time. And when you do that, um, and in a kind of a global market where you know, there's, there's a lot of money and there's a lot of consumers interested in these uh, products, I think it's a really, really good business. Um, and they've just been executing it really well. I mean, it's not it's a crazy. fundamentally different strategy. Yeah, it's not I mean, a different strategy from what Disney has always done, but it's like they're, being, they're very good at it currently. But it's not, it's not about the, the little kids anymore. I mean, my kids, I've got an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old. They don't really care about Mickey Mouse. I mean, haha, maybe a little bit funny. But yeah. the Avengers, oh my goodness. Between the Avengers and Spider-Man, I cannot get my 11-year-old to stop talking to me about the Avengers and Spider-Man. I'm thinking this, like he's talking to me once again about whether Miles Morales is going to come into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, and at, and at what point, and I'm thinking a couple years from now, I'll be begging for him to talk to me. And I like Marvel. I'm into, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you won't stop talking about it. I mean, this is the mythology of his time. Disney owns it, an amazing thing. All right, Siri, next digit. Yeah. 175 million. 175 million, that is how many products Amazon sold over its two day, 36 hour Prime Day event, but Farhad, this isn't just about Amazon anymore, it seems, right? Uh, there's some data out there showing that smaller retailers who aren't on Amazon also saw a 20% plus sales boost from people who are just out looking for deals on Prime Day. It's like a, it's like a global holiday all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I am constantly 
amazed by small things Amazon does that turn out to be huge things. And uh, this is one of those. You know, like, I think when the first Prime Day happened, I thought it was an interesting gimmick. Like, it didn't seem like huge news to me. Retailers all have sales, and so Amazon was going to have its sale day. Uh, but the way that they have done it and kind of made it this international event and... Um, uh, you know, they, it, it's been really good for them for sales, but it also, you know, helps uh, with key problems Amazon has. Amazon is building an infrastructure for, like, peak demand for holidays, and now, it allow, now they have another kind of peak demand day to um, be able to kind of smooth out that demand. Um, I think it's been a brilliant... They didn't have those problems this year like they had last year that were pretty embarrassing, because if you got like, yeah, yeah. AWS on um, one side where you're saying, we'll handle your... Peak demand problems, and then your own Prime Day, you know, goes down. That's right. that's not good. I mean, but that's the kind of thing where, like, you know, they learn from these uh, these things operationally, and then they fix them over time. And uh, you know, Amazon is an incredible company at kind of planning ahead, like building out these logistics. In some way, kind of like Apple, but they're doing it, um, you know, on 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 this uh, web infrastructure instead of like building products. And uh, um, you know, I. Yeah, I have nothing negative to say about this. It's just a, an interesting thing to watch and an interesting way that Amazon is continuing to kind of own all of retail. All right, come clean. Did you buy anything on Prime Day? Um, you know, I did, but it wasn't really, I We needed sunscreen, so I bought sunscreen, but it wasn't related to <laughs> sales, yeah. Or, you know, it's summer, and, like, we go through a lot of sunscreen. So it's I, just I a bought steady that. stream was, of stuff flowing through your Amazon cart, and it just happened to be yeah, Prime Day. Yeah, no, I know. yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. It, same here. I, th th there were a number of things that I had to fight myself. Not like a bread maker. I almost got a bread maker. I almost got like I, I have yeah, to have those no good call on items. the bread maker. It's like you don't. You don't I have a make bread any... maker. We never use it. Yeah. Exactly. It's like John. This is this is the next juicer. You know, you, you juice right. a couple <laughs> times and then it's just in the basement. Don't buy the bread maker. And I did not. That was a victory. Good for me personally. All right, Farhad. Let's move on to hard knocks. A few headlines that might be tough to swallow for some involved. First up, Apple. Reportedly in talks to buy Intel's smartphone modem chip business, calling into question its already fraught relationship with Qualcomm. Farhad, we, we've seen this before when Apple's buying some component from people, some service, and then they just decide to bring it in-house. Uh, its first big chip move of this era was PA Semi back in, I don't know, 2008, I believe it was. Chip mm -hmm. design, low power for the iPod, the iPhone. That's how we got the A-series chips. We got the watch chips. We got the W-series wireless chips for, for headphones. They're at it again. Yeah, I mean, Apple's entire uh, semiconductor business has just been an amazing success. And it's been an amazing success because they've been building amazing products. I mean, they're... Uh, their smartphone chips are better, faster. They keep getting better and faster compared to the competition, um, and they own it. They own that, so they can you know only they can use it in their chips and everyone else in their phones, and everyone else has to use uh, more off-the-shelf stuff. So it's been a good investment, uh, you know. But they have, from reporting, it seems, run into problems with 5G modems. Uh, mm -hmm. That was their, uh, you know, it had to do with their dispute with Qual Qualcomm and uh, Intel. You know, was just not uh, as far along in that business, and um, I'm not sure what to think about this, these talks and um, the idea that they would, uh, you know, spend this much on, on buying this. I don't know if it's defensive. A billion I don't dollars. Know if they actually... That's like, that's yeah. just like a fifth of a Facebook fine. That's like... <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not a huge amount for Apple, obviously, but it, it would be one of their bigger um, acquisitions. They don't usually tend to buy huge, huge, com uh, you know, uh, expenditure like this. So, yeah. um, I, I don't know. But like it's, uh, it's interesting that they're doing this. I mean, they do want to own all the key components of their products. So this seems like in line with that. Yeah, hard knock for Qualcomm, though, uh, surviving, uh, supplying that now. And, and you know, if, if you're Intel, you got to always be looking over your shoulder. Does Apple eventually start making Mac chips? All right, turning to facial recognition. Struggling to recognize black faces, or even brown faces in general, uh, at an equal rate to their white counterparts. One study uh, showed that black women's faces are falsely matched 10 times more frequently than white women's faces. Farhad, I, mixed feelings about this in that, I mean, if, if you're trying to match faces to win the lottery, I want to be correctly matched. <laughs> For some other things, maybe not. Maybe I'm harder to surveil. I don't know. Farhad, I hate to tell you, you're in this boat as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, it's, this is not, this is sort of an age-old problem in technology and in the world where, you know, new products uh, are tested on kind of uh, majority populations and just also the kind, they're tested on the kinds of people that make the products, like how, how, how those people look in their circles. And then they don't quite work or they work badly for everyone else. Um, and, but this has a, you know, there's real, um, problems here that could have, you know, huge and negative real-world consequences, like mismatches for people could be, you know, we already have kind of widespread uh, bias in, uh, in law enforcement and policing and just mm -hmm. the justice system, and this could just reinforce that. And then the, the other thing is that it makes it harder to detect, right? Because you can't, it's hard to, to say that an algorithm is racist or biased. People th tend to think of computers as being, uh, you know, these kind of objective machines. And so, so it's, it's hard to argue against these kinds of findings because they come cloaked in this idea of like, whoa, facial, facial recognition, yeah. that has to be right. It's the new um, police lineup, I think right? this is, you know, if, if you yeah, get picked yeah. out of a lineup, sure, you must have done it. Well, now it's the computer doing the picking, right. but we know just as in the past where there are, you know, inaccurate uh, choices being made in situations like that. Now, now it's the software that's just as biased. All right, finally. Yeah, I mean, I think it could be a huge problem, yeah. It could be, it could be, though... I don't know. In some cases, I, I kind of wonder. I mean, uh, there, there's some other countries that are working hard on AI and facial recognition unfettered. We could end up with a system one day where, you know, uh, Asian faces are, are matched more accurately because more of the AI work is being done uh, in China, for example, than white faces. And then white people might know how it feels, Farhad. Possible. <laughs> yeah. It's possible. It could happen. All right, finally, DoorDash backing down and changing its tipping policy after receiving some heavy criticism over the last few weeks. And for those who don't remember the issue here, DoorDash had a guaranteed minimum tip for certain types of orders that they would give to the driver, even if the person receiving the order didn't tip at all. But then on the flip side, if you give a generous tip to the driver, well, DoorDash would in some cases just pocket that tip and just give them the guaranteed uh, minimum, perhaps plus a little. Now, I had Tony Hsu on CNBC's Squawk Alley back in February and tried to press him on exactly this thing. Hey, if I'm tipping somebody through an Apple I expect that money yeah. to go directly to the person. I appreciate what you're trying to do with the minimums, but it feels a little like I'm being duped. He stood by the policy then, but hey, hard knock. Now he's got to take the heat 
and change the policy. Farhad, what do you think? I mean, I, I'm surprised that they stood by the policy for so long. It, it looks to me just like outright uh, tip theft. Like you're tipping someone and they're reducing their pay in order to, uh, um, it, it, while taking your tip. It doesn't, it doesn't you know, seem fair at all to me. Um, but, you know, there are no real rules here. I mean, these workers are not covered by employment rules generally because they're independent contractors. And so, you know, minimum wage laws don't apply. Other kinds of labor protections don't apply. Mm. Um, I, it's good that they changed this, but it's, like, alarming that they changed it after they've had it for two years and there's been kind of multiple rounds of media outcry over it. And they finally changed it. And I think it just points out the larger, um, you know, lack of protections in this area for workers and um, I think really calls for lawmakers to look into changing the status of these workers into actual employees or some or adding some kind of protections in the market because you know you hear it from you hear these kinds of complaints about pay structure about working conditions just about uh, work in general from not just DoorDash workers but Uber, well, yeah, Uber drivers like everyone else in this market yeah you ever work for tips Farhad I don't mean news tips I mean like you know <laughs> um, no, I haven't. Me either. I, uh, I feel like I would be very bad at it. Yeah, I, pr I probably would too. But I feel like in a, in a way that puts me at a disadvantage in this whole story and working through it. I was wondering, I was talking to uh, one of our CNBC fellows uh, who's, who's shadowing me today, actually, um, and, and did some work for what, which was Postmates uh, and asked him, hey, you know, if they paid you a little bit less on the base, but gave you a guaranteed minimum tip, would that be better? Would you get, uh, value the stability? Because in college, he did a little Postmates delivery, and he was like, oh, well, you know, maybe. So I could see where Tony was yeah. coming from, but I mean, it just wasn't a good argument to have to make. I yeah. mean, it's just, it's a tip. I expect the money to go just like it would to in real life. To go to the worker, yeah. Yeah, all right, yeah. Farhad, thank you. Thank you, you shook me hey, out thanks. of that vacation-induced stupor. <laughs> Great. I'm glad to. All right. Thanks. <laughs> That'll do it for Fort Knox. Follow Farhad on Twitter if you aren't already. And if you aren't already, what are you doing at F. Manju? And read his column in the New York Times. We'll see you next week. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.